0: trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show.
1: Man, we got a great one ahead of us today. We're going to be checking in with uh, Connor Vasile a little bit later on in this hour. He is the author of a book that uh, I think you're going to find well, interesting <laughs> and timely. It's uh, it's called uh, The State Knows Best: How Corruption Destroyed Our Law Enforcement and Left Americans Defenseless. As you might guess Connor's on the side of freedom. Again, he'll be joining me for the last two segments of today's show. Nevertheless, We've got a lot uh, going on, so we'll get right to it. Qu- first, a quick thank you to my sponsors, including QuiltonSo.com, Ironsight Brewing Company. That's IronsightBC.com, TMCPNation.com, and LifesavingFood.com. So I know it's an election year, and I know in an election year, things start to sound, well, pretty much the same after about the first five minutes, right? I mean, it's just endless sound bites and posturing and uh, politicking and so forth. But here's a nice break from that trend of one-size-fits-all commentary. This is from Paul Rosenberg. He published this a couple of days ago. What you don't know about political parties in the United States. And Paul starts with a disclaimer. He says, look, I'm writing this article for the benefit of the many decent, hardworking people who still believe in the necessity of rulership. Now, he says, well, I no longer hold to that belief. I love and respect very many who do. And you stop and think about that right there, just the, the, disqual- the, uh, the qualifier, I should say, that, that he's offering here. How is it that we have been convinced the most important thing we can do this year is decide who's going to rule us? Really? I mean, do, do you need a ruler? Do you, do you feel like, man, you know, I'm just so directionless, if only somebody would just rule me, tell me what to do. Okay, well, how do you want to be ruled? Gently and from the right or, you know, vigorously and from the left? I don't know. So here's how Paul Rosenberg puts it. He says, look, I'll be brief, but there's a crucial fact that Americans have seldom grasped. It's not really secret, but it's almost unknown. And he says it's very important. Notwithstanding its rhetorical, we the people opening line, it was the states that created the U.S. Constitution. It was their representatives that produced it. It was they who ratified it. Now, that was clearly understood at the time and long afterward. He's not wrong. He says, and more importantly, the states retained power under the Constitution. Now, he says, I could throw a number of quotes at you to support this, but I'll give you just one leading into our main point. And this comes from James Madison, the primary author of the Constitution, in Federalist Paper No. 39, to be specific. This is Madison explaining the power of the states over the Senate in the new arrangements. Quote, The Senate, on the other hand, will derive its powers from the states as political and co-equal societies. So, uh, end quote, first of all. Senators under the original Constitution, Paul says, were appointed by state governments, not elected by the people. Okay, If you're familiar with the 17th Amendment, you, you know this. This was a crucial part of the arrangement. In fact, it was part of the original separation of powers. Now he says, again, I could throw out quotes on the importance of breaking up power to the framers of the U.S. Constitution, but he says, I'll leave that to you. I will, however, summarize this point. The states weren't given the power to appoint senators so people would be deprived of voice. It was done to prevent the consolidation of power in Washington, D.C. Plain and simple. Think about this for just a second. So if the state legislatures appointed US senators. That's who they would answer to, right? Okay, Senator Jones, you go off to Washington, you go there and represent us in that uh, the statesman house, you know, of the of the of the legislature. There's a reason their terms are 6 years instead of 2 years like the representatives. So you go represent this represent us and of course that meant their allegiance was to the states that appointed them to go and represent them. That's who they would report report to. That's who they were supposed to stand for. But that changed. And Paul Rosenberg says this crucial arrangement held until the ratification of the 17th Amendment. Now, the arguments against it played upon naivety, or naiv- naivety. There we go. The first was that there was a corruption involved in appointing senators, as if corruption would cease once that changed. Come on, this is politics we're talking about. The second was that some states had not always appointed a senator promptly, as if such events were a deathly horror. Nevertheless, the promise was more power in your hands, and it sold very well, and the purpose was ratified. The proposal, rather, rather was ratified. 17th Amendment was ratified and became part of the Constitution, and states no longer appointed their senators. They were elected by the, the voice of the people. Now, voters thought that power would be given to them, right? Because the states were stripped of power over Washington by the 17th Amendment. But to whom was that power given? Okay, the voters were told, well, it's going to you. This is for your voice. But it was actually the political class who sucked it up. Paul says, sure, people could vote, but only between two carefully chosen and well-groomed choices. Someone with an independent streak might slip through from time to time, of course, but not enough to threaten the power of the parties. And just to make this last point, consider that over the last, uh, over the 125 years between the Constitution and the 17th Amendment, there were minimally seven major parties. Did you realize that? 125 years. Now, in the last 110 years, there have only been two major parties. And those, two have reigned over Washington, D.C. for more than a century and continue to reign. By the way, he says, the framers of the Constitution despised the very idea of political parties, making no allowance for them. So this is the unspoken secret lying at the center of U.S. political power, or at least uh, one of them. And finally, he says, "Please remember, the U.S. Senate was intended to be a Lockean republic, where individuals explicitly and freely agreed as to how they would be governed." That's a powerful line to end on, probably worthy of its own essay. But see, how many people really know this? Right? Is this is this being taught in our schools? Are we taught, you know, that uh, the Constitution? that called the federal government into existence was the product of states coming together at the behest of the people who lived in those states to create that central government with supremacy, right? Just in that tiny little area where they had common interests. No. No, our kids are too busy learning about, uh, well, the, you know, the rainbow stuff, they're, they're learning about questioning their gender, they're learning, you know, all kinds of exciting games they can play with their body or other people's bodies. They're learning about climate crisis. They're learning about, you know, diversity and, and equity and, and inclusivity. They're not really learning the basic civics, though, are they? They believe we live in a democracy. In other words, we're mob rule, basically. The, the majority gets whatever the majority wants. I just think this is one of those really important distinctions that we've got to have clear in our heads. And biggest of all is that that 17th Amendment, which claimed, oh, it's giving everybody a voice, was really robbing the states of their power. It was allowing the consolidation of power in Washington, D.C. And and did it work? Oh, absolutely. Look at those U.S. senators today. Do they go on and on about how, well, I represent the great state of Delaware or whatever, you know, and this is this is what I'm doing to represent Delaware? No. They represent the federal government. That's where their allegiance lies. And that was what we gave up by ratifying the 17th Amendment. No longer would the senators have fealty to the people and the, the, the legislatures of the states that appointed them and sent them to Washington, D.C. Oh, No. No they would they would instead give their loyalty to washington perfect how that worked out so one of the more informative articles paul's always got a great take on things you know people you know if you were to ask me who's had the biggest influence on you in uh, in your life you know as far as your thinking um of course jesus <laughs> and, and and his prophets and you know the prophets of god yeah scripture has but uh, but as far as trying to communicate the philosophy of freedom and to do it in a way that isn't, you know, trying to beat people into submission. You will be free. Do you understand me? <laughs> yeah. Paul Rosenberg's the guy. Paul has the, uh, I think he has the understanding and the depth and breadth to, to know what he's talking about, but it's more, it's the way he goes about it. That to me, I think is, is very worthwhile. In fact, it's it's worthwhile enough that, uh, that it has caused me to change my own approach for, well, the better part of the last decade, maybe a little bit more. So, with that in mind, we'll take a very quick break. Got a couple other articles to share with you. And again, Connor Vasile will be joining me in the second half of this hour to talk about his book, The State Knows Best. We'll be back in just a moment.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show.
1: Thank you so much for tuning in. Thank you for subscribing to my show notes. If uh, you haven't subscribed already, you might want to consider doing that. Simple matter of going to my website, which is the Brian Hyde show.com Click on the show notes, any show notes down at the bottom of the page. You will see a subscribe button. Drop your email in there, and I will take very good care of it, as in I will not give it, sell it, or lend it to anybody else. But I will send you show notes each day that I do the show. Hopefully you'll find something that's uh, worth your time and, and will help help you come away better informed and more confident in how you can move the needle In making a difference in the world. Two quick articles that I want to mention here. The article of the day. I don't know if you're on the dating scene. I'll tell you right now. I look around and I think, man, I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. Entering today's dating scene is not for the weak-hearted. But if you find yourself in the dating scene, Cadence McManaman, writing for IntellectualTakeout.org, shares some very underrated dating tips from a dating expert. I read through these and I went, you know what? These really are solid. And they're based in common sense, so I figured it might be something you would enjoy as well. That's why I included it in today's show notes. Now, the push to get motorists into electric vehicles has been intense, to put it mildly. But I've got an article here from Jeffrey Tucker. This is from the Brownstone Institute. About, this is a a great case of uh, how the great reset didn't work, and that's the case of EVs. Jeffrey says, we're living through one of history's longest, most excruciating versions of we told you so. When in March 2020, the world's government decided to shut down the world's economies and throttle any and all social activity and deny kids schooling plus cancel worship services and holidays, there was no end to the warnings of the terrible collateral damage, even if most of them were censored. So every bit of the warnings prove true. You see it in every story in the news. It's behind every headline. It's in countless family tragedies. It's in the loss of trust. It's in the upheaval of industry of, and demographics. The fingerprints of lockdowns are deeply embedded in every aspect of our lives. In ways obvious and not so much. Now he says, actually, the results have been even worse than critics have predicted. Simply because the chaos lasted such a long time. There are seemingly endless iterations of this theme, learning losses, infrastructure breakages, rampant criminality, vast debt, inflation, lost work ethic, a growing commercial real estate bust, real income losses, political extremism, labor shortages, substance addiction, and much more. Besides, that, that all trace to that fateful decision. Now, he says the headlines on seemingly unrelated matters go back to the same in circuitous ways. A good investment, or a good example, rather, is the news of the electric vehicle bust. So the confusion, the disorientation, malinvestment, over production and retrenchment, along with the crazed ambition to force convert a country and a world away from gas and oil and toward wind and solar, all trace to those fateful days. I think that's very well put, by the way. According to the Wall Street Journal, Jeffrey says, as recently as a year ago, automakers were struggling to meet the hot demand for electric vehicles. In the span of months, though, the dynamic flipped, leaving them hitting the brakes on what for many had been an all-out push toward an electrical transformation. Now, he says, reading the story, it's clear the reporter is downplaying the sheer scale of the boom bust. Jeffrey Tucker says, that's not to say that Tesla itself is going bust, only that it has a defined market segment. The technology of EVs simply cannot and will not become the major way Americans drive. It might have seemed otherwise for a moment in time, but that was due to factors that traced exactly to pent-up demand caused by lockdowns and huge errors in supply management due to bad signaling. So, looking back, the lockdowns hit in the spring of 2020 – and supply chains were entirely frozen by force. Now, this might have been a major problem for car manufacturers that had long relied on just-in-time inventory strategies. However, at the very same time, the demand for travel collapsed. Commutes came to an end, vacations too, and at that same time, pre-arranged government subsidies and mandates for EVs flooded the industry, all of which were later ramped up by the Biden administration. So as demand picked up, retailers sold their old inventory of cars and looked to manufacturers for more, but the chips needed to complete the cars were not available. Many cars were put on hold, lots emptied out. This continued through the following years as used car prices soared and stock was otherwise depleted. By the time matters became desperate in the fall of 2021, manufacturers discerned a heightened demand for EVs and began to retool their factories for more. There was even a time when cars were being shipped without power steering, just to meet the demand. That might have seemed for a time like the crazed period we just lived through was birthing a completely different way of life, a kind of irrationality. Bored of shock and awe swept industry and culture. Of course, the EV was central to it. But that demand seemed to pan out in 2022, as Americans grabbed whatever cars were available, perhaps willing to give the new doohickeys a shot. So on it went as more car makers threw more resources at production, benefiting from massive subsidies and staying in compliance with new mandates for reducing their carbon footprint. Now, Jeffrey Tucker says there was no particular reason to think anything would go wrong. But then the next year began to reveal an uncomfortable truth. Several of them, actually. Cold weather dramatically cuts the range of the EVs. Charging stations are not readily available on longer trips. Charging takes longer than one expects, And having to plan such matters adds time. In addition, the repair bills can be extremely high if you can find someone to do it. By the way, regular listeners to this program who've caught uh, my segment each week with Eric Peters, you'll see some vindication for Eric and the things he's been warning about now for years. Tesla writes Jeffrey Tucker, as a manufacturer, had planned out all such contingencies, but other car makers less so. Very quickly, the EVs gained a bad reputation on a number of different fronts. Last summer, dealers began warning of unsold electric vehicles clogging their lots. Ford, General Motors, Volkswagen, and others shifted from frenetic spending on EVs to delaying or downsizing some projects. Dealers who'd been begging automakers to ship more EVs faster, they're now turning them down. So, in short, the massive miscalculation has left the industry in a bind, facing a potential glut of EVs and half-empty factories while still having to meet stricter environmental regulations globally. Today, lots are selling the cars at a loss just to avoid the costs of keeping them around. Did you realize this? Truly, Jeffrey says, this has been one spectacular boom-bust in a single industry, and there seems to be no real end to the bust either. These days, it appears that everyone has given up on any chance of actually converting the mass of American cars to become EVs. All recent trends are headed in the other direction. Meanwhile, the EV is deeply loved by many as a second car or for well-to-do suburban commuters or for people who own homes or can charge overnight who have a gas car as a backup for cold weather and out-of-town trips. That is to say, the market is becoming exactly what it should be. A street-worthy golf golf cart with very fancy features and not some paradigmatic case for the Great Reset. That's simply not happening, despite all the subsidies and tax breaks. In fact, the American economy, much to the chagrin of many, still primarily relies on consumers to make choices in their best interest. And when that doesn't happen, no amount of subsidies is going to make up the difference. Now, Jeffrey says this story is impossible to understand without reference to the crazed illusions caused by lockdowns. Because those are what provided the respite of time to allow automakers to retool. When they, Then they boosted demand artificially for transportation after a long period in which inventory had been deleted. Then the whole ridiculous ethos of the great reset convinced idiotic corporate executives that nothing would ever be the same maybe we would get 15-minute cities powered by sunbeams and breezes after all along with a social credit system that would allow the authorities to decommission our ability to drive in an instant yeah well it turns out the entire bit was unsustainable even sophisticated car companies bought into the nonsense but now they're paying a very heavy price the new market depended on a panic of buying that turned out to be temporary so in short the illusions of these horrible policies have come crashing down fascinating article from jeffrey tucker it's in my show notes if you want to check it out for yourself you'll find it at the brianhydeshow.com show notes for february 16th 2024 connor basile joins
0: me in the next two segments of the show please stay close this is the brian hyde show This is the Brian Hyde show. All right, welcome back to the show. As promised,
1: I am joined by Connor Vasile. He is uh, he's a lot of things, but among other things he's an author and a contributor with Young Voices and uh, Connor, you wear a lot of different hats. We're going to specifically talk about your book, but uh, tell us just a little bit about yourself for people
2: meeting you for the first time. Thank you, Brian, for having me again. Uh, so yeah, I'm Connor Vasile. I'm a writer, I'm an author, I'm a political commentator. I specifically uh, write on and comment on uh, law and order, uh, crime, and Second Amendment rights in our country. Boy, nothing controversial about any of those topics. <laughs> oh, not at
1: all. <laughs> Actually, I'm looking at your book, The State Knows Best. Wow. Does that describe the attitude that that holds sway here? Talk to me a little bit about what went into writing this book. First of all, where did you get the uh, the genesis of the idea to
2: write this? Well, my first idea with writing this book, The State Knows Best, actually came about during the beautiful summer of love we had back in 2020 and 2021. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, Yeah. All those fiery but mostly peaceful protests. Speaking
1: of law and order. Yes,
2: (laughs) of course. And I thought there has to be a better way at having these discussions, to having these conversations where we're talking about, if not the most, then one of the most volatile and contentious issues of American culture, which is law enforcement and law and order. So the state mo- knows best is a blueprint. Uh, it's a promise uh, saying what will happen to America if it doesn't get its crap together. Uh, as we've seen through the Summer Bluff, through the countless riots, the protests, the violence, we not only have forces that want to defund and do away with our police forces, but we also see this very concerning trend of our police not only being bureaucraticized, but also politicized for the maximum, you have district attorneys, you have prosecutors, you have politicians and talking heads justifying the lack of law enforcement and safety we have in our major cities. I mean, just look at anywhere. We have Atlanta, Chicago, New York, San Francisco. Everything's going to a hell in a handbasket in those places. And just because it's not in the news anymore, and it's not in those 24-7 news breaking news segments, that doesn't mean it's not still happening. And the state knows best it's supposed to encourage people to have these conversations and realize if we don't better our situation if we don't get law and order down pat this country is just going to get worse and worse over time.
1: Yeah, it was absolutely orwellian as you mentioned earlier the whole uh well mostly peaceful protest they didn't look peaceful they didn't feel peaceful and I don't think people had a sense of oh yeah well yeah it's really not that bad. It it was it was ugly but there's also a danger though if if we push too hard for law and order, that pendulum can swing pretty hard the other way. And we get a back the blue mentality that can excuse some things that really
2: aren't good. Definitely. I mean, this book is going to ruffle feathers on all sides. That was my intention, right? Regardless if you're on the social justice activist side or the back the blue no matter who, this book justly criticizes both sides of that aisle. So if we take that mentality of we just need more police, just throw them in there, arrest all the criminals, no questions asked, and everything will be hunky-dory, that's not the case. In fact, history showed us the complete opposite. You know, Police right now, they're, they're protected under qualified immunity. You know, As long as they can justify their actions within the scope of them enforcing the law or protecting people, whatever that means, um, they can pretty much do anything including violating our constitutional rights. I mean, and I talk about in the book, the move bombing in 1985, the police literally dropped bombs on a residential house, which burned down an entire block of houses. And you don't see any any pushback, any, um, any punishments for that because they were doing it within the line of duty. They were protecting uh, people in the process. So if we give the police, which already has this monopoly on violence, if we give them even more deference, they're gonna abuse it. We shouldn't, rem- we shouldn't be less to forget Tyra Nichols. Remind me, Tyra Nichols, that, that name
1: rings a bell, but I can't place it. It's, it's been a few, few
2: years since I've heard it. It's been a while. So Tyra Nichols, he was uh, beaten and I would say tortured and uh, killed by cops in, by the Memphis PD, uh, officers of the Scorpion unit. Uh, They basically tortured him in in the street. They alleged that he was resisting, that he was reaching for their guns. But when the body cam footage came out, we see a sadistic play in effect where generally an unarmed man trying to obey orders was beaten senselessly until his death. And the concerning thing about that is that the police department in that situation already had complaints about those officers and other members of that unit. And they did nothing. This isn't just an outlier. This is a concerning pattern we see in countless cities, in countless police departments, where police turn a blind eye to negligence and violent behavior. And that's only been exacerbated with the defunding movement, right? Less resources, less training, all these issues coming together. And people, ironically, unfortunately, are going to just be less safe because of it. So the state knows best is in this position where it rightly criticizes the ones on the left who want to say we need to ban all police. This law and order is institutionally racist and oppressive. We need to get away with that. But it also looks at and addresses the abuses we see in the bureaucratic system of our police institution because that's not going away either. And that needs to change as well.
1: Yeah, I, I'm i friends with police officers as I'm sure most people within earshot are gonna say, yeah, I know people in law enforcement. So. There's no doubt there are good people who go into law enforcement with the right intentions and I'm here to serve, I'm here to protect, I'm here to sacrifice if, if necessary, you know, for the sake of my community. However, <laughs> there are some things that, uh, that law enforcement is, is doing that uh, I don't know if it's people turning a blind eye or they just feel like, well, you know, if you don't like it, change the law. But for instance, civil asset forfeiture. Anybody but the guy wearing the costume with the, you know, right, costume jewelry on there is going to be charged with robbery for taking cash away from people, you know, under the threat of violence. Um, But, but, you know, not even charging them with a crime. And yet it persists. And, And from the federal level down to the state level, you'll still find officers who are very willing. Oh, you have a large amount of money? I'm going to have to take that because that's suspicious. And it just, I'm sorry, that's one of those that
2: just really rubs me the wrong way. Of course, I mean, civil ass- assets forfeiture, that's even one of the lighter concerns when it comes to this. I mean, just because, as you mentioned, police have this uniform or- on and they have a gun and a badge, they're automatically allowed to do all these things that normal everyday citizens are not permitted to do. It's illegal if they even attempt to. Uh, even self-defense, right? Police, in a situation where they are enforcing a law or apprehending a criminal, in most cases, they can shoot and kill in the line of duty, and they're perfectly fine under qualified immunity. However, in places like New York, if you even dare to defend yourself in your own home by robbers and criminals, you will be sent to jail because that's just the culture right now. I mean, why protect yourself? Why hold your own life in your own hands when you have the state to do it for you? And even then, they're not even going to protect you because they are not legally obligated
1: to protect you. And so, maybe people don't realize that that's that's actually a Supreme Court decision. That uh, oh no, police, you can't you can't go back and sue
2: the police for not being there to protect you, you know, from from a criminal act. Of course, and not only that, we have so much legal precedent at play here, uh, not only from Supreme Court but also regional jurisdictions, where the justification is the police are entitled to protect themselves as well as human beings, rightly so. But unfortunately, we have many cases, which I allude to in my book, where police ignore crime. They actually ignore ongoing assault and violence with the justification that I'm either not obligated legally to help you or it would have put myself in harm's way. Well, then why are you a police officer? We all like to think that, yes, obviously there are good police out there. And they're also social justice activists with good intentions who generally want to change the system for the better. However, the state knows best actually hones in on all these examples examples in real life where the system is corrupted. People are abusing it, whether you're police, whether you're a defunder, whatever it may be. And we actually need to address these topics because if we don't, we're just going to see lawlessness go up, up and up over the years.
1: Well and and I think it was Bastiat who talked about you know there there comes a point where um when when government shows no respect for the law the people very quickly lose respect for the law I'm paraphrasing but um if if the if the government and those charged with uh, with carrying it out if they don't uh, if they don't do their part you know the the people are are going to have a crisis of trust and I guess that's that's kind of where we see ourselves right now Connor we are coming up on uh, our our break um, when we come back, let's talk a little bit about uh, two tiers of justice. Because it seems like right now, depending on your politics, or depending upon uh, where you are perceived to be coming from politically, you're going to get very different treatment under the, under the system of justice. I would contrast, you know, as you'd mentioned, the summer of love protesters versus the January sixth protesters. Not uh, not even close in the in the kind of uh, treatment that they're, they're receiving. Again, we're talking with Connor Vasil. He's the author of The State Knows Best, How Corruption Destroyed Our Law Enforcement and Left Americans Defenseless. I've got a link in my show notes to uh, the Amazon link for his book. If you want to check that out, we will continue our conversation. Just the other side of these messages.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
1: Hey, welcome back to the show. Again, I'm talking with Connor Vasile. He is the author of The State Knows Best, How Corruption Destroyed Our Law Enforcement and Left Americans Defenseless. First of all, Connor, I got to applaud you. This is not a, an easy topic because, frankly, <laughs> you can offend anybody in pretty much any direction, d- depending on, on their take. Uh, but let's talk about two-tiered justice. Right now, I, I'm i under the impression that, uh, that if I were to be charged with some crime, however big or small, my treatment would probably be much different than if I were out, uh, oh, I don't know, throwing Molotov cocktails and... Um, spray-painting ACAB all over the place. I don't know, it just seems like the the Antifa protesters and Black Lives Matter protesters really got a very different uh, kind of handling and priority than, say, the January 6th protesters.
2: I mean, Brian, on that note, as long as you have enough money and influence, I mean, you can get away with pretty much anything. So it seems like that's a a personal problem we need to work on. Jokes aside, Yes, uh, we've definitely seen a two-tier justice system play out. And it's currently still happening, right? I mean, definitely you see um, BLM rioters or social justice activists or just criminals in general getting off pretty much scot-free. New York, for example, has a catch-and-release policy because they want to uh, basically bring down their uh, incarceration numbers. Meanwhile, their recidivism rate is through the roof, just like throughout the country as a whole. Uh, So this is quite ridiculous. You have gangbangers, you have multi-state multi-time offenders getting off practically nothing meanwhile everyday americans who either defend themselves or are just caught up unfortunately in bad situations they get drastically worse sentences why well it's the safe face it's for this idea of equity or social justice or whatever when right in reality we don't have equality under the law anymore daniel penny uh, the the case of the guy who
1: intervened on the New York subway um, for for an individual a homeless guy who apparently had been threatening passengers for for years but uh, he was uh, subdued by Mister Penny put in a chokehold I don't think it was the chokehold that killed him but he did die later after after that struggle and and Daniel Penny who wasn't out there you know thumping his chest and challenging people to a fight just stepped in to protect people now he's facing manslaughter charges exactly like you said Connor. He's the one being perp-walked, you know, in handcuffs, you know, through all the cameras and, and the press. Well, in the meantime, you know, uh, people who, who are absolutely doing criminal acts, um, I, I look at the, the illegal immigrants who just attacked a couple of cops in New York City. They're bailed out and, and let go. And, and I'm curious, what's the dynamic behind this? It sounds like somebody is, is working an angle here, whether it's to undermine faith in the system or consolidate power. I don't know
2: what. Well, Brian, you read my mind on that point. So what I have to say is just follow the money, whether it's the DAs, you know, various prosecutors or local politicians. You know, they are the ones pulling the strings when it comes to who the police arrest and who actually gets prosecuted. Just like in the Daniel Penny case, you have illegals who literally assaulted police officers, intentionally tried to harm them. And they were let off scot-free while they were flipping off the camera. Yeah that's the type of city, that's the type of place we want to live in and raise our children in, that's unacceptable. So it's not only the the neglect and the abuse that maybe, yes, uh, various individuals within the police departments are participating in, but it's also the corruption from up above, right? The top brass, the politicians, the bureaucrats, who are not only funding these police departments, but also telling them who they can arrest and when and why. You have actual DAs with blacklists of uh, police officers they refuse to uh, find arrest records or uh, review arrest records from because they're just annoyed with them. How dare you bring in these people to prosecute? That's not our job. Wow. And yeah, and it's just just a, a spit in the face to everyday Americans. And that's why in The State Knows Best, I advocate for more sheriff's departments because unlike, you know, your standard Metro police squad, sheriffs actually depend on your vote to stay in power. They actually have to be elected into their position. So if they want to, you know, stay where they are and be sheriffs, they have to do what the people want. And the vast majority of people want law and order. That's unequivocal. So we need to bring back those sheriffs. Talk
1: to me about what happens if uh, officialdom still continues to turn a uh, blind eye Towards a lawless acts, it sounds to me like like the stage is almost being set, and maybe deliberately, uh, for you know a, a return to vigilanteism or people taking the law into the into their own hands, not because they're bloodthirsty, you know, white
2: supremacists, but because nobody else is protecting them. Well, that's really interesting to know because we are already having vigilante actions in places like Detroit, for example. You have groups like New Era Detroit and Detroit Three Hundred who, um, when you take a look at them, you might not think they're white supremacists because they they are made up predominantly of black men who uh, they escort women and the elderly through the streets. They make sure crime stays down. They deter criminals from either stealing or committing crime and harming people. And they actually work in tandem with the local police departments who are either overwhelmed because there's too much crime or they're still suffering from staff shortages. Thanks, defunders. Mm-hmm. So... In that sense, you actually have these vigilante groups, and they're not going around harming people and shooting willy-nilly. This isn't the the Wild West out here. But it just goes to show that when the state refuses to do its job, every day people will step up and do the job for them. And it's been successful. So why can't we have more of that? Yeah. And now, see, I... I can see the people in power, though, and I'm talking, you
1: know, all parties, the ones who really want to hold on to power, that's got to be a threat to them because, uh, hey, some at some level, we have to remember that we need them. We need their, you know, even if it's bureaucratized, you know, police force, you know, to protect us. But when, when people don't have that satisfaction or they, they know, look, we're on our own. I think of the store owners, for instance, in California, how discouraging would it be to open your store every day knowing that, you know, according to the law, or at least the way law enforcement will respond, people can come in here and steal up to $899 worth of merchandise and walk out of the store and there's nothing I can do. In fact, if I try to stop them, you know, I, I will be the one who will be
2: you know, in trouble. Exactly, Brian. This is just justice flipped on its head, right? You have, like you mentioned, in California, you have district attorneys who refuse to prosecute repeat offenders regardless of the crime and that just encourages people to commit crime as we see. You have Walgreens, you have CVS, they're locking up basic necessities or Q-tips or whatever. This is the type of world we wanna live in, that's ridiculous. Just the other day, uh, Mayor Brandon Johnson of Chicago, for example, he said that the city will no longer fund the the shot spotter program, which basically tracks all the gunshots throughout the city. So now people cannot see where their shootings taking place in Chicago. Why? I mean, at this point, Brian, I have to think that they really hate us. They're doing it for control, and they realize that a weak populace who cannot defend themselves and is completely reliant on the state will not rise up and defend themselves. So right now you have the Brandon Johnsons. You have all the DAs. Uh, you have this Fannie Willis character right now who's not having the best of days. Boy, she is not. <laughs> so- they Yes, Go ahead, I'll finish that thought, and I'll ask you one last question. They're a, they think they're above the law, and they're rubbing it in our faces. So if we can't depend on them, if we can't depend on the police, if we can't depend on the state, we have to depend on ourselves. Which
1: brings me to the question: um, Is this why we see such a push for for gun control? I mean, it's it's perennial, and there's always the same you know people, Schumer's and so forth, that have pushed for gun control. But it seems like uh, Not only are we supposed to be helpless, but really, we need to be helpless and and trust government to protect us. But why would they want to take
2: our guns? (laughs) Unless it's to consolidate more power. But Brian, it's the guns. It's always been the guns. We wouldn't have this crime. We wouldn't have this chaos if it weren't for these instruments of uh, material destruction. I mean, come on. This This is just a political ploy. We all know this, right? But at the end of the day, if that were the case, okay? if the guns were the problem, all these constitutional carry states would be witnessing massacres every single day because it's the guns, right? It's not the people wielding them. So with the Kansas City shooting that just happened with the the Super Bowl parade, there's not very much uh, coverage on that anymore. It was most likely a, a gang altercation, a gang shooting. It's not the guns. It's the people, it's the culture, it's the education behind those people who basically don't care about the law. They wanna harm people and they don't care who gets hurt in the process. So if that were the case, if guns were the problem, we would see all these people with CCWs or open carrying, go around shooting people like there's no tomorrow. But that's not the case. In fact, those states that allow constitutional carry and people to actually defend themselves are much safer than any blue metropolis that has the strictest gun control measures and people are getting shot literally every single day. Again, we are talking with Connor Vasile. He is
1: the author of "The State Knows Best: How Corruption Destroyed Our Law Enforcement and Left Americans Defenseless." Connor, for the sake of those who would like to follow you on social media, where can they find you?
2: You can follow me on Twitter at Connor underscore Vasile. We get into very uh, nice conversations there, so it'd be great if you could give a follow.
1: Got to have you back on the show. There's there's so
0: many more questions to ask, Connor. Thank you. Thank you. This is the Brian Hyde Show.